At This Week Health, we've been blown away by the generosity of our community as we have committed to giving back to Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation and the fight against pediatric cancer. We've raised over $100,000 and have helped fund 1,667 hours of research since 2022. If you'd like to join us in this cause, go to thisweekhealth.com and click on the blue banner on the top of the page to give today. We thank you for your generosity. Today on This Week Health, we never talk about wellness data or we never talk about patients who are healthy. This data is quantifiable and is really a good predictor of a number of health metrics, whether it's behavior, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health. And today, our health system in general is not necessarily taking into account any of it. And that's where I think the future is. Thanks for joining us on this keynote episode, a This Week Health conference show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our keynote show partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. All right, today we are joined by Nasser Nizami, CIO, CDO for Jefferson Health out of Philadelphia. Nasser, welcome back to the show. Always good to be on your show, Bill. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate it. We caught up with each other when I was up there in Philadelphia, went to that uh, little coffee shop outside your office. You guys are you guys are meeting again at the office, aren't you? you you're bringing people into the office these days? That That's right. So we are in what we call a hybrid now. So two days in the office, three days remote for most of team members. Of course, there are team members like in clinical engineering, in desktop support, telecom support that have to come every day due to the nature of their job. But overall, on balance, we are two days in the office, three days remote. Well, we'll, we'll get into that and some other topics as we go through. My listeners want me to make sure I ask this question first for everybody. And I've had you on the show a couple of times, so they, they may have heard this before, but I'm going to ask anyway. Tell us about Jefferson Health. All right. So Jefferson Health, I think last I uh, I, uh, I was on your that podcast was in sometime in 21, early 21. Yeah. At that time, we did not have a insurance plan. So now we are in three businesses. We are an 18 hospital health system. We are a U2 campus university, and we have a pair plan now. So altogether, we are a now $10 billion organization uh, with about 43,000 employees in three businesses. Well, actually, when we were talking, you guys were at the early stages. You, you had made some announcements on acquisitions or even had made some acquisitions, but it was still highly not integrated yet. So I imagine over the last two years, you probably have done a fair amount of work on integration. So, no, so, these, so these are actually newer integrations. So well, we acquired so, so three hospital health system called Einstein Health in October of last year. And then in November of last year, we acquired Health Partners Plan, which is a pair system. So and I may have my months reversed, but both within, uh, within a two-month period. So Einstein is primarily on a Cerner. EMR and they have multiple revenue cycle systems. Uh, Jefferson, as you know, is uh, primarily an Epic shop. Uh, so we are in the process of integrating your right 
uh, things like EMPI, radiology lab interfaces, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, some of the integration work has already been completed, other will continue, and it's a, it's a journey. As you integrating EMRs even today is not an easy task. It's, 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 it, it, it takes a lot. Partner yeah. peer business, insurance business, we are new at. Like myself, my team are learning about it. We have a great team. IT team at Health Partners Plan. We are fortunate to have some really talented individuals. We are working with them to just pick some low-hanging fruits in infrastructure and cybersecurity and data center management and so forth. Of course, their suite of applications is totally different from clinical suite of applications. So Philadelphia is interesting. Are you guys primarily focused on the urban area or have you pushed out into the mainline area of suburban areas around Philadelphia? Oh, no, we we absolutely serve greater Philadelphia area and Southern Jersey. So we, we absolutely are. We have hospitals that are outside Philadelphia and Abington and other areas. And certainly we have hospitals in Washington Township and Cherry Hill and Stratford in New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. So you're that you're that whole area. All right. So you have a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of stuff going on in healthcare. What are some of the priorities at Jefferson today and going into 2023? I'll share with you some of the enterprise priorities and then how we are working within IT to support them. So enterprise-wide access, cost-cutting as healthcare and academics are facing some significant headwinds. So just efficient operations is a big initiative at Jefferson. Patient engagement, patient experience. So these are the top enterprise initiatives. Supporting those initiatives, we have our, what we call tongue-in-cheek digital funder strategy. We are working on AI automation to, again, manage efficiencies and cost. We are working on integrating different businesses. Einstein, I mentioned health partner plans. We are moving to cloud. Uh, cybersecurity is an ongoing thing. So some of the initiatives, so top business plan, and then within IT, how we are uh, structuring, structured to support these initiatives going into 23 uh, and beyond. Wow. Nasser, I don't even know where to go with that because you, what's, one of the things that's interesting is we, we have financial pressure, but it doesn't sound like the number of priorities has gone down. It sounds like the number of priorities has gone up and continues to go up. That is true. So here's the thing. There is so much room to improve operations, make it more efficient. The good news for Jefferson is at least for the foreseeable future, we are not going to be in any, we are not looking at any implementation. So up until last year, even this year, we were under back-to-back -back major implementations of ERP, EMR, student system, PACS, so on and so, you name it. Right. I think at Jefferson, we are over the hump now. So the future is really good because we have now for the first time in like five years or more time to focus on optimization. We always were working on optimization and improving efficiencies and so forth, but with large scale implementation, it's difficult. Whenever you are up against that deadline, your teams, yourself, everyone is focused on that go live. So, so now that we're on the other side of major go lives, at least for time being, we're focused on optimization in even with cost cutting and everything, look, the, the initiatives, just simple initiatives to streamline, let's say, OR and carry up processes. It's a pretty 
major initiative. We have a huge shortage of nursing. We are launching a virtual nurse initiative to solve that problem, right? So you think about we are paying premiums, uh, we, are, we are paying for uh, temporary staffing, and one of the solutions for both cost containment and the staff morale is virtual nursing. It's not something that we have done in the past. It is going to require significant technology investment and adoption. But at the same time, if you're successful, it's going to help us with our cost containment and staff retention and just a staff morale perspective. So you're right. There's no lack of initiatives, even in an environment where there is restricted capital. As I'm listening to that, the, the nice thing about having the foundation in place, which is what you're describing, you're like, we've done the ERP, we've done the EHR implementation, the major EHR implementation and integration. Once you get that integrated stack, you get the flywheel effect, right? You can make a little change that has a significant impact across all your hospitals instead of when you have, when you don't have an integrated system, uh, and it, most of our listeners are going to understand this, when you don't have an integrated system and you go, all right, we're going to make this change to how we handle supplies across all these hospitals. A lot of times the IT team would have to step back and go, yeah, that's four projects because we have to do it like this for this hospital, like this for this hospital, like this. And so you get these, you get that flywheel going where you make that one change and boom, now all of a sudden you're doing something different across the board. You said it very well, Bill. Like I say this, that if you have not lived in a world of single integrated system, you just don't know what you're living. Now, so and, and flywheel effect is exactly the right word because a base, a standard base of set of systems just takes you out of the integration interoperability mode and allows the team, my team now, to focus on where the value is. So we are not talking about simple, and you're exact, one BPA, one alert takes, well, like I, when I joined Jefferson, we had nine different EMRs. Okay. One simple alert was a initiative across multiple hospital, multiple teams, EMRs. And it's just you know, having a standard base assistance really makes life easy. But more importantly, it truly allows for innovation to happen. Right. Right. Yeah, that's single platform. I want to go in the automation direction. It's the, I mean, I have AI automation. I've wrote down a bunch of things. Cyber, I'm going to avoid just because I, I don't put my guests in that position to talk about cyber all that often. Not because it wouldn't be interesting, but because other people can listen to this show as well and pick up on your cyber and, and in cloud. But I want, to, I want to start with automation. I'm hearing this conversation a lot heading into 2023. What areas are you seeing automation really take hold at Jefferson? So look, we started on automation journey you know, a while ago, but it was really pockets were mostly started in IT. In 2020, we picked up and said, hey, we are going to really push forward in where we, we enable processes in pharmacy, in supply chain, in revenue cycle, limited in clinical areas, some in IT, especially with onboarding of and so forth. The biggest bank for our buck the success that we are seeing and we are, we are focusing on are two areas, revenue cycle and IT. It doesn't mean that other areas don't have opportunity, but what we have found is that the vendors that are out there 
with solutions are most mature in revenue cycle in IT. In IT, perhaps because you know we are sort of masters of our own destination, perhaps. In other areas, we have to rely on expertise from other departments. In IT, we, we, we see a lot of opportunity and we still have the issue of siloed systems, HR system, not talking with our active directory and so on and so forth. But revenue cycle really is the area where we are seeing ROI, like clear ROI. It's still a lot and, and where we believe that there is a lot more opportunity, especially with our peer plan now, now that we have a peer plan and there just, I'm learning about a number of processes that are incredibly manual. We are literally people are using phone calls and faxes and just very broken processes, if you will. So there are technologies that sub, that help there, but given that these are actually multiple different systems, I believe that uh, the automation has a, a role to play here. So when you talk about revenue cycle, are there specific cases like the submission of claims or I'm at a loss. Yeah, exactly. The prior authorization, submission of claims, management of denials, and so on and so forth. So there are about 12 or 13 use cases that our teams have identified. And, and it's interesting because, again, I'm not an expert in this area, but as I learned that each pair have different processes yeah. for things like authorization, things like you know, denials. And our teams today are just have to learn and they're experts in knowing, oh, this is this pair and this is this insurer and this, this is what I have to do and this is how I have to verify, this is how I have to check eligibility, so on and so forth. And in many cases, these steps are the same repetitive task. You click here, you click here, you check the status here. You click here, you click here, you submit something here, right? And that's where automation really, I think, provides a ton of value uh, to learn about these different I guess, steps, right? And basically automate them because there's there's some decision-making, but it's almost like following decision three. So, so about 12 or 13 use cases to answer your question. So it's, the decision-making is generally rules-based decision-making. Are we seeing AI and machine learning start to get integrated into some of that automation as well yet? I would be honest, and I'm hearing a lot. I'm not seeing a lot. Right. So every vendor that we go to talks about AI, but when you dig a little bit, either AI is not really there and they're really talking about some advanced analytics or the AI does not have ROI to it. Now, I do believe that AI will ultimately play a role here because anywhere where someone has to think and take an action, AI has a role to play. I firmly believe that, yeah. right? But the technologies that I have seen all claim to have AI and machine learning, but I have not seen them practically make yeah. a difference. I'm with you on that. I, so some of the use cases I've seen AI actually delivering an ROI are around imaging. 100%. I can talk about imaging all day long, not around automation though, yeah, in yeah. the sense of revenue cycle automation. Yep. No, and that's, I was trying to transition to AI and just say, all right, so, as people are looking at AI, imaging seems to be one area where we're seeing a significant movement in that area. I mean, we can actually break that down into multiple areas. You have radiology, cardiology. X-ray imaging is interesting because I'm seeing AI models on top of that to do to do reads. And it's all 
clinically, what's, what's the word I want to use? It's to assist the clinician. It's to reduce the cognitive load on the physician and say, hey, here are three things you might want to look at. We've run it through the AI models. We've run it through the machine learning models. And these are the things that are of interest to us. Now the clinician just comes in, the read becomes a lot easier. They're going, yeah, that's something, that's nothing. Yeah. And away you go. Radiology and imaging. And, and look, even at Jefferson, if I were to say, what is the most advanced area? There are many, first of all, but radiology certainly is leading the pack, I think. And the, the reasons are straightforward in the sense that we have the data because we have tons of images, number one. The deep learning technologies are, you know, technology is there, which can be easily, not easy, but trained on images. So I'll give you one example, and we can generalize this because we are using the solution today where we, our brain scans are uploaded to one of the cloud vendors that runs their AI algorithms and detect any patients with the high risk of a stroke. And if the AI algorithm detects a patient with a high risk of a stroke, they real time sends a message uh, to uh, one of the physicians. And the physicians have apps where the message pop up and they can take action in real time, right? So the, the, the think about the efficiency now that this has bought us. Uh, and, and this is being repeated for a number of other use cases. I gave you an example of a stroke, but this is, the, this is a use case that you can just multiply for different, anywhere you have an image that someone has to read, there theoretically there can be an AI algorithm doing the read, if you will, right? So radiology is the area where we are seeing most, I think, use out of it. There are other areas as well. Where, like sepsis is an area where we we have some real data uh, in our quality team deployed a model with our epic. The, the one thing I would say is that I think there are two things in my experience with AI. One is having a model that is deemed good model, whatever the definition is. You can define whatever that means. But the challenge today in healthcare is how do you implement the outcomes and make it actionable. So when an alert is going out, who is number one, who is doing, who's taking the action? Is it a nurse? Is it a technician? Is it the patient? Is it the doctor? And then what are they doing? But it's not good to just say, hey, I think that this patient is in a high risk of sepsis. That doesn't tell, that doesn't mean anything. And even if you say, hey, look, 50% probability of this, 30% of this, 40% of this, it's still not good enough. You have to be, you have to have something that is usable by the clinicians or whoever is it, and a process around it. How do you close the loop when, you know, the story example I gave is really cool because it's a, it's a closed loop process. You, at every stage, you know that, all right, someone is uploading, someone is detecting, and a person is, you know who the person is who's going to get the alert and then take action. In, in an inpatient environment where you know, you're in ED, let's say, or other areas, uh, it's, it's not as simple. So it took a long time for us, but we are in a really good spot because we have sepsis deployed, we're using it. And I think the more, uh, I'm more the, the where I see most adoption is in non-clinical areas. Again, IT comes to mind. Cybersecurity is a great example where we are using AI algorithms, but we are using it in AI so on and so forth. So revenue cycle as well. In 2023, 
We are celebrating five years at This Week Health, and we are working to give back, and we will be partnering this year with Alex's Lemonade Stand all year long. As you know, having a child with cancer is one of the most painful and difficult situations a family can face. At Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, they understand the personal side of the diagnosis, the resources needed, and the impact that funded research can have for better treatments and more cures. Today, Alex's Lemonade Stand is one of the leading funders of pediatric cancer research in the U.S. and Canada, funding more than 1,000 research projects and providing programs to families affected by childhood cancer. You can get more information about them at alexslemonade.org. So how are we going to partner? Well, the leadership team and myself personally, we have put some money aside to really fund the start of this. Uh, but what we're looking for is partners, right? So we're going to ask our partner, our partners, our sponsors to be a part of this. We're going to ask you to be a part of this. And some of the ways that you can help contribute is we're going to have drives throughout the year. We're going to have follower drives, followers of the show, followers of our LinkedIn channel, Twitter channel, YouTube channel, you name it. We're going to have these drives. And as part of those drives, we're going to ask people to be a part of putting donations towards Alex's Lemonade Stand. There's going to be many opportunities this year. So keep an eye out all year long to see how you can support Alex's Lemonade Stand. You can find more information out on our website, thisweekhealth.com. You can also check out Alex's Lemonade Stand again at alexslemonade.org. And if you go to our website, their logo is going to be on our homepage on the top right-hand corner. We're celebrating our five-year anniversary, and we want to continue to give back to the community. So we welcome you to be a part of it and looking forward to seeing what we can do this year. It's interesting with AI, like clinically adjacent areas could have an impact on clinical. So for instance, we're seeing companies like LeanTOS being used yep. for scheduling of the surgery centers and the the various ORs and whatnot. And that's driving a significant amount of efficiencies. It's utilizing the clinician's time a lot better. It's making sure that the, the the rooms are ready when they need to be ready, when the physician shows up and that kind of stuff. That's an interesting area. I'd love to see AI applied to discharges, communication around discharges. Because I, I remember we were looking at discharges at our health system and the number one thing that kept people, and it, it could be up, upwards of like six to eight hours additional in the hospital was finding the right person to do the discharge. And so we had started, I, I, we didn't finish it, but we we had started, I left when before we finished it. We were starting to look at, you know, why was it that we could have such inefficiency in that area where somebody was in the hospital and we couldn't find the right person who could actually discharge that patient and they would actually take up room in that, in that facility for another six to eight hours. I mean, I, I could see, I could see if I were doing that analysis today, it would be nice to just take all the data, process it, look at the machine learning, what are the trends and analysis, and then apply some sort of models around that. I'm sorry, this is just me brainstorming. I'm trying to build a new product here with you on the show. Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's there's adjacent things to how hospitals operate that I think AI will start to really see a, a greenfield opportunity to help us be more efficient on all the things we do on a daily basis. Let's talk about let's talk about cloud a little bit. 
Um, mm -hmm. the, the cloud move is interesting. What's driving the cloud move for Jefferson? What's the motivation behind it? Look, it's interesting because we were, myself, my team were always fans of cloud, but not necessarily in the sense of cloud first, or we must move to cloud. We took a more opportunistic view and said, all right, we'll look at inflection points when we're looking at new products, major upgrades, so on and so forth. We are going to entertain the idea of a cloud. And if you, if you roll back six or seven years ago, there was just a massive, I guess, to move to cloud no matter what. And what we have learned is that not all solutions are necessarily meant for cloud, number one. And that cloud is, at least in our experience, is not going to necessarily, it's not a cost-saving strategy. If anything, it's at best, it's cost-neutral. In most cases, it's going to add cost, right? So, so with that background, we were moving our assets to the cloud slowly. Uh, and I would say today, I would describe us probably about roughly 70% on-prem, 30% in the cloud, roughly. And that's that's probably we're more in the cloud on the university side, probably maybe it's like 50-50. And on the health system side, it's more 70-30. But we believe that now the technologies are there, costs has come down. So in, in as we have grown, we have business demands of scaling up very quickly and responding very quickly. And at the same time, scaling down very quickly. Hey, how do we, like, we, we, we Jefferson, we work with a number of startups. So we would bring in a company, we do some experimentation and look, like many experiments, not everything is a success. Sometimes things fail, right? In, yeah. in an on-prem environment, it's very difficult and expensive to reuse the assets. So you, you don't have a good concept of scaling up and scaling down. Cloud provides that capability. So those the cost efficiency somewhat, uh, scalability, speed to market, we knew that. But I think there were two things that happened that really pushed us. Number one, during COVID, it became clear that almost all cloud vendors did really well, whether it was Office 365 or Zoom or Teams or, or learning management system, everything is scaled really well, number one. And secondly, of course, we moved, we started the conversation with us being hybrid. So we know that our workforce is not coming back to the office in any time future. Again, I'm talking about non-clinical workforce. We, we are very much a, a health provider system. 80% of our workforce comes to the office. And the third thing was around business continuity and disaster. Our calculation is that for us to provide the business continuity in cybersecurity, or so disaster recovery or cybersecurity to the level of big players like Microsoft or Amazon, it's going to be very expensive. We can do that. We can stand up data centers, but end of the day, we'll always have two data centers. We are not, never going to, and they're going to be probably close proximity for us to manage them cost efficiently. So we made a conscious decision to partner with Microsoft and move Epic and a number of other assets to Azure Cloud. That is a two-year journey, and our goal there is to flip the numbers from 70-30 to 30-70. There are still assets that today, like facts come to mind, uh, are going to be local. 
that may change as we progress and maybe you know two years from down the road we, we may think that apax should be in the cloud as well but today our goal is to really be in the cloud and it's it's a it's a significantly different mindset and significantly different way to operate you are very familiar with this model it changes how we think about cybersecurity it changes how we deal about a number of things within it well i mean the nice thing is you guys have been so busy integrating all those other systems that we actually can look now at all the mistakes people made in moving to the cloud and go, man, we, we can avoid those, avoid that. And I love, you're looking for agility. You're being very selective in terms of understanding the cost models, what works and what doesn't work. It's really, I love what you guys are doing. You're in Philadelphia, access to care. We've talked to you. We talked to you and Dr. Clasco before about how access to care is so critical. How are you pushing that forward? What are the initiatives around access? So access, again, as I mentioned, this is a big initiative at Jefferson at multiple levels. So this has certainly technology pieces to it, but non-technology pieces to it as well. So how do we get in the communities that we serve, you know, that don't have good access to things like transportation or don't have healthcare facilities near them. We are earlier, right before your meeting, we were, uh, I was with a group of physicians, a brainstorming cancer screen. Uh, so during COVID, we outfitted these mobile vans and with full um, technology set of suite, wireless, Epic, everything, and deployed in communities for COVID vaccine. And now we are uh, using the same model for things like cancer screening. So, so, so again, there is a, there's a process piece to it, there is a human element to it, and there is a technology piece to it. So on the technology front, we are really pushing the limit here. And really our mantra for the last 12 or 18 months is, has been how do we scale, right? So we have the mobile technology, we have the patient portal, you know, and the question for us was, all right, how do we increase patient engagement and how do we scale? So we today are, uh, a 60% mark of all our active patients having uh, our My Jefferson Health, which is our mobile uh, portal account, that roughly number is 900,000 patients. Our goal is to get to 80% 80, 80 in next 12 to 18 months. So we are ahead of the curve here. We are very proud of it, but there's a lot of work to be done. Now, the things that we look at are things that are meaningful to patients. So can I schedule my appointment? Can I do e-check-in, can I ask a question, can I uh, request a medication refill, can I pay online? So uh, in, in the big initiative today is around uh, standardizing templates and making providers available online for patients to schedule. And I think we are on a path to have, uh, we, we have great adoption in primary care, which is the easiest one for any type of scheduling. But specialists can be tricky because you have to follow oh. certain decision trees and you don't want the wrong patient to show up at the wrong specialist, right? Yeah. So there's a, but our clinical team, especially in our medical group, has done some really outstanding work and a lot of work, hard work, I would say, to create decision trees that we are now taking and implementing for 50 or so specialties, okay? And that's where I think one of the biggest, one of the areas, the biggest bank for our buck is going to be. Another area I'll give is our phone system. We talk about AI. 
we implemented a cloud-based phone system. We turned on sentiment analysis on that. And we uncovered a couple of very interesting problems just by AI listening to the calls. And yeah, so using AI, we know what calls have a positive sentiments, what calls have negative sentiments. And that gives a very good data point for, for colleagues who run the scheduling center to then focus on a group of calls and see what's going on. And we are learning some very interesting things in just last two or three months. But this is another initiative where we believe that using AI, we can build prompts and intelligent call call routing and really direct our patients to the right prompt. But one of the things that we have consistently heard from our colleagues in, in scheduling, central scheduling, is that, I don't know, like 60, 70%, a very large number of calls are how to, how to questions. How do I get to direction? Can I have the or insurance verification, things of that nature, things that we can make and things where we can route patients to a good spot using some intelligence in, in the call routing. So just a couple of examples on how we are thinking about technology and using technology to improve access experience for our patients. That's really fascinating. As, as we increase access, one of the things I just saw is Cleveland Clinic is now charging for messages. So some messages that go to clinicians in their inbox, right? So they can go into their my chart and they can say, hey, do a refill. And there's no charge for that. Or they could say just something simple and there's no charges for a whole host of things. There's no charges. But then there's the the other thing, which is, oh, by the way, when I got home, I have these new symptoms and these new things are going on. Things that would take you know, a clinician 10 to 15 minutes. As we increase access, are you finding that the clinician burden is the other balancing of that scale that has to be considered? And are there things you guys are doing around the just the amount of messages they have in their inbox and whatnot? Yeah, so a couple of comments. I also saw uh, the announcement that Cleveland Clinic will be charging. So we are not charging today. And we do have a high volume of uh, messages. And this certainly adds to physician workload. There's no, we just, I think three or four months ago, we undertook an initiative to just clean up the inbox, right? So for instance, a very large number of messages, thank you messages, right? Patients being nice and thanking the physician for whatever service, right? I asked you a question, physician responded, and I sent a thank you message. But the volume is so high that this is essentially a clutter. And so you said a nice thing to do, but essentially it's a clutter in, in, in physician inbox. So how do we perhaps move that into a separate folder where physicians can go time to time and look at them, but it's not going to be in their inbox. So there are initiatives in at Jefferson to improve the physician experience from an inbox perspective, right? But look, I mean, simple answer is uh, any advice, any question, every question, every advice is someone thinking, whether it's a physician or someone in their office. So there's certainly validity to the fact that this is a work for someone. It could be a nurse. Right? So no, not all messages are answered by the physicians. Typically, someone triage, triages the message and then before it gets to the physician. But even that someone is typically a nurse or a, you know someone in the office. And I have to believe that after a certain volume, 
there is a good case to say, hey, how do we charge for the service that we are providing? We are not charging anything. Today. When I read the article, it sort of took me back and I'm like, oh, I've got to see where they're going with this. But then when I read it, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. It's like if an architect would just say, hey, what do you think of my plan? And they look at it and go, yeah, it looks good. That took two seconds, although you still got their expertise. Or if you say, hey, can you review my plan and submit it for for approval? Yeah. That's like, well, wait a minute. I, I understand you sent this to me in email and you think it's no big deal, but that just represents a lot of schooling, a lot of expertise, and a lot of work. And I think that's how they sort of looked at it and said, how much, how much effort is associated with this without, without, all right. So you've given me a lot of time. I appreciate it. Let me give you a closing question here. And it is, let's do a future question. So what technology are you keeping an eye on and you believe is going to have an impact on healthcare over the next five years? So something that's maybe a little bit more out there than, than the normal stuff we're looking at right now. Certainly AI. Like, I mean, AI has not put a big dent in healthcare, right? Yeah, we, have, we, have, we haven't even started yet, right? We're, yeah. we're going to see a lot more. Yeah. Exactly. But in the long term, it's going to be a very large piece of our healthcare. That's one. I have similar sentiments for remote patient monitoring. There was a lot of hype, I think, on RPM in 2020 and some in 2021. That this is going to be changing the way we provide care hospital at home, and device, device integration, so on and so forth. And I absolutely believe that it will happen. But a few years from now, probably five years from now, up until we will have, you'll see incremental, gradual move towards RPM, perhaps in chronic health patients and here and there. But ultimately, long term, this is a technology where I believe that is going to have a much larger, I think, impact on overall population. And lastly, generally, look, as a, when we think about healthcare, we never talk about wellness data, or we never talk about patients who are healthy. Okay, and there's wealth of data. Like I'm wearing a Apple Watch. I mean, I have to believe that you are doing something. I'm guessing, but regardless of whether you're logging your health information in an app or you're you have a wearable. Uh, or you're just using a peloton, there is a ton of data that is being generated. Your social interaction on the uh, on social media, for instance, that is this this old data is quantifiable, and is really a good predictor of a number of health metrics, whether it's behavior, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health. And today, our health system in general is not necessarily taking into account any of it. And that's where I think the future is. Right now, there are some health-conscious individuals. If you are a health-conscious individual, you can set up your own regimens and you can use three or four different apps in your in hospital data and your lab results and can create something. But the future, I think, is going to be a lot more integrated, perhaps 10 years from now, but it will happen. Yeah, fantastic. I love that vision of making more of the transition to health, keeping people healthy and keeping them well and engaged in the community. Nasser, always phenomenal to catch up with you. I really appreciate the time and look forward to, to staying in touch in 2023. Likewise, my friend, thank you for having me and have a great day. I love the chance to have these conversations. 
I think if I were a CIO today, I would have every team member listen to a show like this one. I believe it's conference level value every week. If you want to support This Week Health, tell someone about our channels. That would really benefit us. We have a mission of getting our content into as many hands as possible. And if you're listening to it, hopefully you find value. And if you could tell somebody else about it, it helps us to achieve our mission. We have two channels. We have the conference channel, which you're listening to, and This Week Health Newsroom. Check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. We want to thank our keynote partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix, who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.